0: Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. Commercial free versions of past episodes. Podcasts blast from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today folks, we are rewinding back to April 26th. 2016 not that long ago about three years this was episode 1773 outdoor cooking grilling smoking and more and the reason i put this show in on a Rewind week because I wanted to have a fun show, something that was just fun, and I like making you guys hungry. Seriously, guys, cooking is something I'm really passionate about. Uh, I always try to cut new intros into shows when I do a Rewind, but this is one of those shows there's not a lot new to say, man. Cooking is cooking, but I did want to hit you up with a couple things here at the beginning uh, to remind you some stuff. Number one, remember, I need you guys to call in and call me a jerk, right? Uh, The Jerk line is active and live. It's not getting as many calls as I expected. Uh, it looks like I might have lost a couple calls. Someone call eight maybe screwing up. So I need your help on this. Call into the jerk line 877 644 1345. 877 644 1345. For episode 2500, we're going to have the Jack, you're a jerk episode. You guys call in, tell me I'm such a jerk. And then tell me all the cool stuff that's gone on in your life because of TSP and the Survival Podcast community. If you're new and finding this show during a rewind week, there's a reason people call me a jerk. It's a joke. It's okay. Uh, if you keep listening, you'll understand. Uh, next up, I want to remind you guys, while I don't do any sort of real commercials during these rewinds, that you can support this show really easily by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. Just go there whenever you're going to buy anything online and start there, and no matter what you eventually buy, you help support the Survival Podcast and the work we do. With that, let's go ahead and just have a fun episode today and talk about cooking. Rewinding back April 26, 2016, uh, Outdoor Cooking, uh, Grilling, Smoking, and More, Episode 1773 as we go it's a little walk three years back in time. Let's go ahead and get into uh, the main topic of today's show, and it is one of my passions. I am a person that doesn't like grill for special occasions. It's actually unusual that I'm cooking inside, especially for dinner. I would say I cook outdoors generally about four to five days a week on average year-round, and some of the days I don't it's because we went out to eat. Or we went to somebody else's house or something like that. So it's probably higher than that in percentage points of all the times that we're home. Um, I even had, you know, kind of some neighbors in Pennsylvania for a while thought I was, had a screw loose. Because even in Pennsylvania, like, there's snow on the deck and we just shoveled enough off of the grill and I'd be out there with, like, the Weber smoking or the gas grill going in, like, February in Pennsylvania. And people look at that kind of weird, especially up north, because... Up there, it's kind of like barbecuing's for the summer, right? And there's reasons behind that, like it keeps the house from getting too hot or what have you. But I like the technique. I like the quality of the food. I mean, to me, nothing beats the flavor of grilling and smoking, and I enjoy it, too, even if it's cold, if it's not too cold. Like if it was, like, snow blowing and wet and nasty and sticking to your skin and freezing you, no, I didn't do that. I'm talking about days when, like, you know, the sun's out, it's cold, but the sun's out, and it wasn't too bad, you know? Around here, it has to be, like, raining and nasty to keep me indoors. And some of the grill stuff I do, I can do undercover, and then I'll still be out on the porch. I just like hanging out. And in in the summer, it's great because it doesn't heat the house up. And for me, we have a relatively small kitchen. We went through hell to get it remodeled, but we did. And it's very nice. But in the end, it was the layout, the footprint of the kitchen was going to be what it's going to be. And we just couldn't make it any bigger. And I don't like tight, confined spaces. I like to be able to move around, right? I'm not a guy that likes to sit in a hole for very long. So I don't like tight spaces. So um, to me, it's just something that makes sense for my way of life. But I kind of want to just give you a little bit about why I consider it like a preparedness topic or a survival topic. First of all, I think when it comes to preparing food, storing food, growing food, anything involving food, it is definitely a preparedness topic because one thing we all have to do to stay healthy and alive and thrive is – we have got to maintain you know, a diet. We have to eat. So you got to eat. So if it's food, to me, it's preparedness no matter what. And just because you have to survive on food doesn't mean it has to be crappy. Learning to make food taste great um, allows you to get through those tough times when you might be relying on preps or what have you. But it also is a big part of what I consider lifestyle design. So when you become a fantastic cook and your food is great, you spend a lot less time going out to eat. We generally go out to eat like to entertain friends or something like that. And a lot of times people will offer to buy dinner and be like, just come to the house, let me cook for you. So, you know, to us, going out is something we do just to get out, right? When it comes down to the quality of the food, we're generally pretty happy with what goes on here. So that saves a lot of money. That saves a ton of money. Um, and it does use bushcrafting techniques. I mean, if you're, you can campfire cook in your backyard, you don't have to go camping to cook on a campfire. You know, you can make a roast in a Dutch oven in a little fire pit in your backyard, either one you build into the ground or one of the ones you buy. You know, so it, it does have that kind of primitive aspect to it, and it is off grid cooking most of the time. Even if you have a gas grill, you have the capacity to store an awful lot of propane with a few tanks. And even if you're using a plumbed gas grill, so it's plumbed into natural gas service coming from the grid, natural gas is about the last of all utilities to go away. I've seen power out, cable out, phone out, gas on. It takes a lot to take gas service down. Usually it takes a backhoe, and a lot of times then you still have service. Just certain areas might be a little bit dangerous. So it's off-grid cooking as well. So those are why I think it's a preparedness topic. I want to talk about some basic techniques and what I mean when I say them. And, again, some of the stuff I say may not be technically accurate according to a chef or or what have you. This is what works for me, and that's the the angle I'm coming from. So we'll start out with grilling. To me, grilling means that I have heat under whatever I'm cooking, and it's on a grill or a grill-like surface. So I would even say that if I have a a grill-style pan, and it's over top of a propane burner, more like a stovetop, you're still grilling, but I call it kind of cheap grilling, but you're still getting that same effect. But it's direct heat onto the food, and then we're grilling. If we're roasting or baking, then we're using a controlled heat, and we're using generally an indirect heat. Okay, uh, There's some type of, of, of way that we're controlling that heat, maintaining a constant temperature. Uh, There's a lot of different ways we can do that. But we don't have heat right underneath the item that we're cooking, especially in outdoor situations. Like With a gas oven, yeah, technically that heat's down there, but it's controlled by a thermostat, and you're really controlling the air temperature. So what is really the difference between roasting and baking? Here's the truth. They're the same but different. It really depends, from my understanding, on the food you're cooking. If what you're cooking starts out soft and ends up hard, like batter becoming bread or dough becoming bread, you're baking. If you have batter and it becomes a cake, you're baking. If what you're, what you're cooking starts off solid, like asparagus or meat or anything, then you're roasting. And somebody will tell me I'm technically wrong, but to me, that's the only difference. So I don't even really worry about the difference, and I just consider anytime we're trying to control and maintain heat at a certain temperature without the infusion of smoke as we're roasting or baking, okay, Smoking. I classify smoking into three things. Most people do not. Most people would say it's either cold smoke or hot smoke. I call it hot, warm, and cold. And you know, you have roasting and like you see the different temperatures, barbecuing on your sidebox smoker. Here's what I. Here's how I feel about this. I can take something, and it, a cold smoke is pretty obvious. You have smoke and no real heat. I use a Bradley smoker for most of my cold smoking. I have a little heat box A little briquettes go into. It sits off to the side, and there's a pipe that brings it to the, the smoker itself, so there's no heat inside there. And that's for aging, curing, et cetera, and I'm not really going to talk about cold smoke today. But when I look at smoking, like using a side box smoker or using a grill with moist wood chips or whatever, If I'm in that 200 to 250 degree range, that low and slow range, I call that warm smoke. Now, again, that may not be technically accurate, but the reason I make the differentiation is I can fire up the side box of my side box smoker pretty intense and just keep dropping moist wood chips or wood chunks on it and get a quite hot smoke where I'm up in like the 400 degree range. Why would I want to do that? I might do that to basically roast a chicken but with smoke flavor and get more smoke flavor than if it was just on the grill. That would be one instance. So I personally differentiate between that, and I think it's an important concept because the concept unlocks for you what you could do with food based on what you want. Certain things come out cooked slow really, really good, and certain things actually do better being cooked more rapidly. A lot of times that has to do with the texture of the meat, the cut of the meat, the thickness of the meat, things like that. So we can also hot smoke in more of a grilling fashion with smoke infusion. So we could take something like just a plain charcoal grill. We've got our good hot coals that we're going to be going ahead and just grilling on. But we take a handful of moist pecan chips and put that onto the coals and get a quick rapid smoking of that throw the, the whatever we're trying to do that with down, and it's still hot enough that it's truly grilling, but put the cover on the grill and get a smoke infusion while it's grilling. It will nowhere near be like low and slow smoking of ribs or brisket or what have you. okay? But it will have an infusion of flavor and quality from that smoke. So that's another way I see hot smoking. So it can be done a variety of ways. But if we're going at a higher temperature and and we're adding additional things to create smoke, not just the residual smoke from the chips and the, from the from the charcoal or the fuel, then we're smoking. We can do this on a gas grill. I do this all the time. I get a gas grill, get it up to temperature nice and hot, take a big handful of wood chips. And When I do this, I don't even soak them. I don't put them in a box. I don't put them in foil. I don't do anything with them. I set them on one of the hotter spots of the grill, and I spread them out on the grill. I close the grill down, and I get it up to the temperature I want to cook at. I hold it at that temperature. I wait until I start seeing smoke waft out of the side of the grill. And then I cook whatever I want the smoke flavor infused in kind of right around where those wood chips are. And I'm grilling and doing that. I can do indirect smoke that way too and do a slow smoke on a gas grill. You can can do whatever you want. And what I'm going to tell you today is in spite of all the things I'm going to tell you you can do, in the end, the more you play with these things, the more you figure out what works for you and fits your lifestyle, your timeline, the, how you want your food to taste, how the people around you want their food to taste, etc. Okay? Um, when it comes to frying and boiling and using a pot or a pan, I really don't differentiate between doing that on a stovetop, on a, on a burner, on the side of a grill, on an outdoor stove, on a rocket stove. Those go back to all the other techniques, boiling, sauteing, frying, etc. So I don't really differentiate those because they're outdoors. And I don't really think there is, but there are certain means of control of temperature that, that vary and, and, and work in different ways. For instance, I've seen people think, well, I'll just fire up the gas grill and throw a pot of water on it during a power outage and make spaghetti. It takes a long time to boil a pot of water on, the, on the, the surface of the grill. It's not really designed to do that. So a side burner or a dedicated burner is going to bring water to a boil much quicker than just throwing it on top of a grill or a, a rocket stove type situation. Okay, um, Some other terms I use that are not necessarily technical terms. High heat. So just high heat, period. To me, high heat is hot enough that if I put something down, it's reasonably quick that that item begins to get a sear on it or a crisp. Medium heat, it's going to take longer for that to happen, if at all. But I'm cooking. I'm at a point where the food is clearly cooking and cooking the way it should, if that makes sense, because I've seen people with really low heat fires, they didn't get their charcoal right or something, and the food's just kind of sitting there and not really moving at all as far as moving the temperature up in, in the meat. When I say indirect heat... I personally mean that there's still quite a bit of heat. There's a roasting going on, if you will. Uh, so we're talking temperatures that are more in like the 300, 400 degree plus range. It's just that the heat's not underneath the item. When I say low indirect heat, I mean this a couple different ways. The overall temperature of, of the fuel is low. Or I've really separated it quite a bit. So I still have a pretty hot fire, but on a large surface grill, if I have the other side of the grill off and it's way over to the other side, I may say I'm low indirect heat cooking. And I'll I'll give you an example of how I use indirect heat cooking and grilling together with like a bonus recipe right now. This is my recipe for squirrel. Yes, squirrel. If you try this, it will blow you away. You can either do this with key snows, uh, steak seasoning, or just salt, pepper and garlic its really all you really need um, a little paprika is nice in there too and take your squirrel that's been skinned and you quarter it into pieces you brush, them, you brush it with a little bit of olive oil so you get the stuff to stick and you put your seasoning on it you get your grill really really hot but just on one side and you throw the squirrel on the grill and you cook it on one side for about four minutes really really hot it'll sear nice in that time if you've got a good hot grill you flip it for just a couple more minutes, and then you remove it from the grill and put it into foil. And this is you're going to then turn the temp, If I usually do this on the gas grill. Turn the temperature all, all the way to low, as low as that thing will go. Close the lid, though, so that, or actually leave it up on high. Close the lid and wrap your squirrel up. So that starts to warm up the whole grill now. Then take your squirrel, wrap it up in foil so that no air can come out of it, a good tight pocket. Open the grill up, put the squirrel on the the side of the grill. You can do this with chicken. You can do this with anything, but this works great with squirrel. It blows people away. Put it on the cool side of the grill, close the grill back down. Leave it a couple moments. Watch the temperature. Bring the temperature up in the grill so that it starts to heat through. And, you know, it depends on, on you. For me, I usually just do it for, I don't know, two or three minutes. You can watch the temperature, I'd say, you know, somewhere in the 300, 400 degree range. And then kill the heat as low as possible. With a charcoal grill, you got to think about controlling your ventilation and stuff like that and dampering it down and what have works either way. But this is great to do with a, a gas grill because it's so set and forget it. Set a timer for 30 minutes. Come back, and it will be juicy and fall apart, and you'll wonder how the hell that's a squirrel. And people that have had me make it for them are like, I don't get it. Because they, squirrels are tough, they're dry, they're not high in fat. You do it that way... And it's fantastic. And there's a technique. So you could do that with quail. You could do that with rabbit. And that's what I want to drive home to you today. So when I do that, I call that low indirect heat because the temperature is low. But I also look at it this way. I might have a charcoal fire, small pile of charcoal, over to one side of the grill. And I can grill on top of it. And I can just pull the food just barely off of it. So it's still relatively close to the heat source. And I can I can indirect roast it with that. If I pull it farther away, like as far away as I can go, I'm gonna have a lot less intensity of heat on that item. Okay? So that's what I mean when I say that. Now safe space, right? Making fun of the the wimpy college kids. I need a safe space where nobody says anything offensive. Yeah, we call that your bedroom. Go in your bedroom and close the door and don't listen to anybody. What I mean on a grill is I have seen people do this way too many times. They take a grill and they put charcoal in the bottom of the grill and they cover the whole bottom of the grill and then they light the charcoal and they get a great big bed of coals and there's no cool spot to move food out of. So with charcoal, I generally never take up more than 50% of the area of the grill with charcoal. I have at least half of it where I've got my hot and my low indirect heat. And if I go far away and take the lid off, right, I've got a safe space. Something starts to get too hot, it starts to flare up, it starts to burn, move it out of the way and, and stop from ruining it. you got to have a safe space. In gas grill cooking, I've generally found, even if you're running both sides of the grill, if you, you, you'll figure out there's certain hot and cooler spots on your grill surface and all the way to the front of your grill where when you close it, you'd kind of move the food a little bit. Those are pretty good safe spaces. But generally, I run even a gas grill if it's got two burners. If I'm even running the whole thing, I run one a little hotter than the other, and that gives me a really nice little cool area up front corner to move stuff out of the way. All right, so there we go. So what I mean by that. So some thoughts on different tools and what they're good at. Charcoal grills. Charcoal grills are great when you have the time to get your coals the way you want them. You know what you're going to cook. And you know how much, you need, how much fuel you need to get it all done before you kind of run out of coals and have to kind of keep it going with more coals or start over or what have you. That, that's the way I look at it. And I have no qualms with this. If you're cooking something that you're going to want to slow cook after you sear it and you want all that flavor from charcoal, like the squirrel type thing, if that was one thing you're serving, you're gonna be cooking other meats, like let's say you're gonna save that along with some steak or something. Okay, you get your charcoal hot fire nice and hot, you go ahead and set your grill up on low heat with a gas grill. You do your you sear your chicken or your, your squirrel, your chicken, your quail, whatever, you're gonna do that slow roasting thing I just taught you about on the charcoal, you pull it off, you wrap it up on full, you pitch it on the gas grill, you close it down, precision control, forget about it for thirty minutes. Now you still got a great, beautiful, hot fire there. We pull out our, our you know, our pork chops or a steak or whatever, a veg, and we grill that. And that's just waiting for us. We could do that with potatoes too. We take some potatoes, rub them a little salt, olive oil, pepper, throw them on that hot surface of that grill, get a char on them, throw them in foil, throw some butter or something on them, wrap them up, throw them in the gas grill on low, off to the side, indirect heat. They're ready when we're ready. So that's one way you start using this stuff together. So gas grills, I, I love for their precision, but I love charcoal for its flavor, and it's it's fun to learn to control fire versus just having a knob. And I love to do steaks, and I love to do thick pork chops over charcoal. I love to do seafood over charcoal, and I'll talk to you about that in a bit. People are afraid of it. I love doing it. Gas grills are great when you just want to be able to get home and say, yeah, you know, we should have took some meat out of the freezer. We didn't. Dad's going to stop by the store on the way home, pick up some meat, and we're going to cook right away. You go outside, you push a button, you light a match, whatever it is, there it is, set the temperature you want, put the top down on it, come back in five minutes, ready to go. It's a little too cool, you bring it up with a knob. It's a little too hot, you bring it down with a knob. You kill one side, move stuff over, drops temperature almost immediately. It is like having your kitchen outdoors, is, is how I, I view it. Sidebox smokers, um, they make great huge grills. Like if you're having a party and you're gonna do a bunch of burgers and dogs, well you can have coals in your sidebox smoker, three quarters of the of the main cooking chamber with coals, all of it hot, safe space over to the side, and you can cook your ass off for quick stuff. But of course, what they're really there for is making briskets and pork shoulders and things like that. And I love them. I'll tell you what else is wonderful. On a sidebox smoker, though, get good with your sidebox smoker before you 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 risk the investment that you'll have here. Prime rib, you do a great big prime rib, you herb it up, and you slow roast it with with medium temperature smoke, 250 300 degrees on a sidebox smoker. It will blow you away. It'll blow away the restaurant prime rib. It, it's just it's just gorgeous briskets, of course, ribs, all those things are great on sidebox smokers. Sidebox smoker, for those who don't know, looks like a big round grill and a little grill attached to it. And a little grill is your firebox in, in general, and your heat's in there, and you control your heat from there and your smoke from there, and it goes into your smoke chamber. And there's, there's something else there. There is a big difference in the temperature of one of those big sidebox smokers over by the firebox to the far side. So we might when we use those correctly and we're cooking a lot of food, and that's what they're good for. Like if I'm going to make a single pork shoulder or a single brisket, I do not fire up my sidebox smoker. I use a thing called a Smokinator, I'll tell you about in a second, on my little Weber kettle grill. I just don't need all that space, and I don't need all that fuel to do it. But if I'm doing something like uh, ribs and chicken and brisket, then I might take the brisket, get that all seasoned up, And I'm going to put that way away from the firebox. I'm going to put the ribs in the center and the chicken that I want. Maybe I'll butterfly the chicken, cut the backbone out, flatten it out, and kind of angle it so that the top skin is kind of pointed at, that heat coming right out of that firebox. Keep an eye on it and roast that, get some crisp on it. And if I want it to be in there a bit longer, I can move it over and set it up on top of my ribs and let the chicken fat run down through my ribs. So you start to see how you use the flexibility that's there the things that are naturally going to occur. You've got a small heat box and a great, big, huge chamber. That that chamber's not going to heat completely evenly. It's going to be hotter closer to the source, so use that to your advantage. Um, outdoor stoves and burners I love because a lot of stuff, like I said, like boiling water, sautéing and stuff, if you want to do that outside, you either want a gas grill with a really good side burner. You want a dedicated you know, kind of like turkey fryer type thing or fish fryer type thing. Though those can get a bit hot when you're trying to run them down, or a really nice outdoor little gas stovetop, and I have my favorite one. I'll link to in the show notes today. I won't say a lot about it. I've covered it before. It's great, and I kind of use all of those techniques. So we have great big, you know, propane burners. If we wanted to do something like make a great big shrimp boil, right? But we also, if we want to just sauté some stuff, like some potatoes or something like that, little bitty stovetop, two-burner stovetop, cooks better than your – if you have an electric stove, you're going to want one of these. Go to the show notes and look it up. Uh, it's made by Camp Chef. It is, it is just – it will change the way you look at cooking if you're currently cooking with electric. You'll find yourself out with it sitting on a, on a picnic table making your breakfast in your backyard because gas is so much better. Than electric when it comes to cooking on a cooktop. Um, I also then kind of for that type of thing look at rocket stoves as a viable alternative. So you know whether you build one yourself or you buy a product. Uh, Steve has some great ones. Steve Harris at rocketstove1234.com. He has everything 1234.com I think at this point in his life, but. You know, even if you're building it out of like nine cinder blocks, you can build your own little rocket stove. And then a lot of people think with rocket stoves, you can only hook with high heat. But by simply pulling the fuel back and using less fuel, you can just go to a simmer, you can go to a high heat fry. I'm not going to talk about that a lot today, but I wanted to throw that in as an option because I'm thinking about building a great big barbecue pit using cinder blocks with a concrete base and making it do a lot of these things as an all in one and having a back piece of it that would work as a rocket stove. And because you can do it with cinder blocks, you might even have it to where you insert one or two cinder blocks, turn it into a rocket stove, take them away, and just turn it into more of a, of a basically small grill. That would be kind of cool. I'm not ready to release how I'm going to do that yet because I'm not sure yet. All right. Um, fire pit cooking. Well, fire pit cooking is just what it sounds like. We build a fire in a pit, and we cook in it. I like to use Dutch ovens for that. I also like to do a lot of things just rolled up in, in uh, aluminum foil. It's a great way to do baked potatoes. If you just take your fire pit and kind of make a nice little spot where it's not raging, but you've got some coals, roll up some potatoes in salt, pepper, and butter, and poke a couple holes in them with a fork before you do, and cook them there and just kind of give them a turn every once in a while, they come out fantastic. We can cook bannock that way, which is basically bread dough wrapped around a stick over the fire. Uh, fire pit cooking is kind of its own thing, and I won't go deep into that today, but I wanted to also include that. Again, Dutch ovens. I love Dutch ovens because of the thermal mass they have for slow cooking uh, things. And I love using Dutch ovens in combination with fire pits. That's the number one thing I would use a fire pit for. And you can make anything from a dessert like an apple cobbler uh to just some of the best pot roasts you could ever make. And there's something about cooking with a Dutch oven on fire coals that even though you'd think like, the smokiness shouldn't be able to get inside there, inside that cast iron. It does. It's different than just taking the same Dutch oven and setting the temperature on the, in the oven and putting it in the oven. It does come out a bit different, and I really love the way that it comes out. Dutch oven cooking is kind of its own thing. Next up is the Smokinator. I'll have a link to where you can get them for the Weber Kettle Grill, which is my favorite little charcoal grill of all time. There's a reason it's pretty much unchanged since the 1930s. Um... It is a small metal device that goes to one side of the Weber kettle grill, and I have some videos of me using mine that I'll put on the in the show notes as well, links to them. And you fill it up with charcoal briquettes and a few pieces of wood, and there's a little water pan that sits in the center of it. And then you, you leave a little bit of space when you do that. And then you make a little pile, or put them in a charcoal chimney of, I think it's like nine or 12 more briquettes. And you do this with briquettes, not lump charcoal. And you get those to that nice white hot. And you take a pair of tongs and you drop them into the smokeinator. That's it. And it will run for several hours like that and it will hold just beautifully at 250 degrees. What you have to do to make that happen, keep an eye on it. Don't open it too often. Keep an eye on the temperature on the top of the Weber kettle. has a great little thermometer in it. Very, very accurate for that type of thermometer. Works great. Um... But it may start to drop and need some fuel, so you just take your tongs and drop a couple more briquettes in it, maybe a couple little, you know, splinter pieces of wood uh, to do that. And the other thing you have to do is keep an eye on that water pan. And if you start to see that temperature climbing up much above 250, open it up. You're probably going to see that water's getting low. Keep the water in that water pan. That keeps moisture. and It helps control the overall temperature. And I have done all kinds of amazing things with the smokeinator. I really recommend the Smokinator if you own a Weber Kettle Grill. And if you don't own a Weber Kettle Grill and you like to cook with charcoal, I recommend you get a Weber Kettle Grill. And I'll have links to all that stuff in the show notes today. Um, Now, I want to talk a little bit about making your own special stuff, special seasoning, special spices, and how it's not complicated, but people make it complicated. And you always hear chefs and and competition people, and you watch – TV shows like Manfire Food, you know, so what's in that? And they'll say salt, pepper, garlic, and I can't tell you what else. Okay, most of that is bullshit, all right? If, you, if you're if you buying seasoning and spices from somebody and they say it's a secret ingredient, it's not. It's on the label, tells you what's in there. What they won't tell you maybe are the ratios. And so for a lot of people, that's their secret is I use X amount of this and Y amount of that. But in the end, I'm going to tell you that if you use the if you get the list of stuff that I'm about to give you, and don't try to write them down, they're all in the show notes and a big long list so you can go get them. You can do ninety-nine percent of what you'll ever have to do with grilling and cooking indoors and out. But before I do that, I want to talk to you a little bit about glazes, built making a glaze, because it's one of the best ways that you can really set your food apart and really enjoy cooking and eating it. So a lot of people will buy a pre made glaze or they will do something like buy barbecue sauce, and then just kind of put it on the food. Okay. There's some barbecue sauces that are good like that. And we occasionally, we use one um, from a place called Zeb's in New Hampshire. It's a smoky apple barbecue. It's a wonderful sauce. We always put it out for people at our events. It's it's fantastic. We, we're from Texas. And we order barbecue sauce from New Hampshire. That tells you it has to be good. This is ground zero for barbecue sauce. That said... A lot of the times when I use barbecue sauce, I use more of a glaze and an example of how I might make an individual glaze. And again, I don't do recipes like a cup of this, some of that. I'll put some barbecue sauce into a bowl. I'll also add some Worcestershire sauce, like a splash of Worcestershire, a little bit of soy sauce, probably about, about almost half of what the volume of the barbecue sauce is. I'll begin mixing that together. I'll add either brown sugar or honey one or the other, to, to great, get some sweetness into it. Uh, and then a lot of times I'll add either beer or wine to that as well, and some apple cider vinegar. And then if there's anything else I want out of it, if I want it hot, I'll add some maybe some crushed red pepper or some hot sauce. If I wanted to have a fruit flavor, if you wanted to have like an apricot thing going on there, you just get some apricot preserves, some organic apricot preserves, uh, and, and, and and mix that into it. Right? Organic apricot jelly would be better than preserves for that. Uh, so you could have an apricot lean to that glaze. You could do that without the barbecue sauce and everything else I just gave you. But you make a glaze, and what you want is the glaze to be not thin like water, but not thick like barbecue sauce out of the bottle, about halfway in between. And get a good uh, brush. I like to use the silicone brushes. I've gotten to where I like those a lot more than like, uh, the, you know, like the material, like the mop style or whatever, or the, the, the synthetic bristles. I like the silicone. It doesn't burn up on you if you actually touch the wrong part of the grill or what have you. And it does a really good job of evenly coating it. And so then you make your glaze. And there's, you can do this dozens and dozens of ways. You can use other herbs and spices and seasonings in there. Whatever you want to bring out the character of your glaze. The key with glaze is timing. So we're going to grill our food, whatever it is. I don't care if it's a peach and we're going to glaze it with honey. I don't care if it is a steak and we're going to glaze it with the glaze that I just gave you, right? Uh, might, let's do steak. If I was going to do a glaze for a steak, a little bit of barbecue sauce. I'm talking like a couple tablespoons, right? Horseradish mustard, a little score to that. Soy sauce, a couple jiggers of soy sauce. I don't need much glaze for a steak, right? Cracked pepper, okay? a little bit of apple cider vinegar for some bite. I'm going to mix that up. I'm going to cook that steak until I know I'm about ready to pull that steak off the grill. And it's nice, it's crusty, it's looking good, but it's not quite done to my doneness that I want, which means it's not been on there very long for me. And just before I take it off, I'm going to glaze one side of it, and I'm going to immediately flip it. I'm going to glaze the other side of it. Let it cook for a little bit more, and I'm going to flip it and reglaze the top and I'm going to do that till I get it looking the way I want within how long I can cook it before I ruin it by overcooking it and I'm going to get it off the grill with a thin crusted glaze and I'm going to do that over the heat and the heat's going to take that sugar caramelize it and begin to darken it and maybe even get a little bit black and it's going to look beautiful and it's going to taste great and that glaze is going to be on the outside of the meat it's not all marinated through it or anything like that it just gives that pop a flavor to it and it sets it off alright so that's that's the basics of glazing to me, and I do a lot more of that than dumping sauce on stuff. And you can make any kind of glaze you want. You can make it hot. You can make it mild. You can make it salty. You can make it sweet. You can make it savory. It's up to you. Okay. Um, next, the here's the herbs and seasonings and stuff I think you should be using. That this is well stocked pat- pantry according to Jack Spearco. Rosemary, thyme, garlic, paprika, onion powder, whole peppercorns with a grinder, okay? Not pre-ground pepper, and I'll tell you why this is important. Peppercorns derive a lot of their flavor from the oils that are in them, and when they sit as a whole peppercorn, they do a really good job of holding on to that oil. When you crack them and grind them, it's only a day or two, a lot of that oil kind of just goes away. And this is why when you take even good quality you know, coarse ground black pepper, pre-ground pepper you smell it, not deeply so it goes to your nose and makes you sneeze, but you just kind of get the, the aroma of it, it has one smell and when you crack pepper, as soon as you crack it, there's a smell that's so much more intense and fruity and delicious smelling, right? that's why, it's that oil so, I recommend if you're going to do things like, I'm going to have black pepper, white pepper and a melang of like red, green pink, all, all the different colors together get three freaking grinders and keep them in your grinders and be have them at access. It just comes out better. By the way, all those pepper colors, same plant, just different stage of ripeness of the peppercorn berry before they harvest it. Okay? Pepper mills. I went through a lot of peppermills in my life, and one day I was at like a gourmet shop and I think I paid like forty bucks for it. I don't even know what they sell for on Amazon, but I'll look it up and link to it. And I found a peppermill made by a guy named Vic Firth. This is a guy that made his, his name doing drumming and drumsticks like actual drumsticks, right? And it said on it, the marketing was good, the last pepper mill you'll ever buy. Last one you'll ever buy. And I said, well, it better be, right? I bought that about eight years ago. I still use it every day. Uh, whenever it's empty, you know, it's kind of been run through one time. All I do is take it out and basically t- take it upside down and-, and shake it out. Make sure that any of the fine pepper that's kind of, Get into the grinder. There is out of it. Fill it back up and use it again. It's all I've ever done. The only time I ever had a problem with it wasn't nothing to do with the design. The little bolt thing that goes on the top of it, hold the cap on, fell and just vanished. And I have no idea where it went. And when we redid, it, redid the kitchen, we found it and I put it back on there. Until then, I had a. I went down to Home Depot and took my pepper mill and found a nut that would fit on it. I had a nut on it. That tells you that I am pleased with it. So I don't. You know, pimp product much, but to me, I'd rather spend the money and get something that's a one time purchase because I've had so many pepper bills that are just crap. It seems like an easy thing to make, but uh, a lot of them are garbage. Um, moving on from there, cumin belongs in your pantry, and I'm all for fresh herbs, but I'm talking about with this list dried stuff that's in your pantry, it's always there. And if you want to use fresh and you have it available, fine, but if not, it's always there. Got it? So, cumin. Oregano, and I also like to have Mexican oregano around. Those are two different things. Uh, dill, and I like to have dill, weed and seed, both of those available to me. Fennel seed, red pepper flakes, so crushed red pepper flakes. Chili powder, I'm talking about regular, good old-fashioned, mild chili powder. Um, brown sugar and honey, both of those. I use them in different ways. Sometimes I use them together uh, for glazes and things like that and for sweetness. Uh, dry mustard, so dry mustard. Powder. Uh, Also, mustard seeds. And I like to have both a light and a dark mustard seed for various things. We won't talk about using those much today, but like making brines and stuff like that. I love to use mustard seeds. I make my own salami and I use mustard seed in that. Whole mustard seed in that. Parsley. You you gotta have parsley. You gotta have parsley. You gotta have parsley. When it comes to salt, I like to use kosher or sea salt. I like a, a coarser grind and I keep in a little wooden olive salt box. So I can reach in, grab it and, and and measure it with my fingers. And I'll do a lot with salt by sight and taste. Far more than I do, okay, I'm gonna use a teaspoon of salt. When I start measuring salt, I find myself oversalting. Believe it or not. When I kind of just kind of yeah, that looks about the right amount, boom. Never oversalt. Um, so salt, I love being able, I think most chefs would agree that having that coarser salt and like, again, kosher and sea salts and those coarser grinds are what I prefer. I also like Himalayan sea salt. Um, but I find myself cooking more with just plain old fashioned kosher salt, not ionized. Okay. Uh, vinegar. You definitely think you need vinegar. Uh, vinegar is an acid. It helps to tenderize. It balances sweetness with, 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 with sour. Um, it's one of the five main tastes, and the more you can get your dish balanced with all of your five main flavors, the, the more rounded your cooking will be. That's why Vietnamese cooking is considered some of the most refined cooking in the world because it almost always does that, and it does that with French influence. So we don't really think a lot about Vietnamese cooking, but if you wanted to really learn technique and balance in food, you could do a lot worse than finding a good Vietnamese chef and working with them for a day, okay? Um, But I definitely think vinegar belongs in there, and I I usually try to keep at least two types of vinegar on hand, uh, so a plain white everyday vinegar and an apple cider vinegar. And I'm not real big on the infused vinegars and stuff like that because I'm usually using vinegars as, as part of a glaze or a marinade. I'm not the guy that likes the taste of vinegar. I like what it does when blended with other things, um, so I'm bigger on infused oils than I am on vinegar. So uh, oils is another thing I think you should have on hand. I like to cook with coconut oil uh, and olive oil because I think they're both probably some of the safest oils that we can use. I also like to cook with lard, so I don't really know if I would call that oil, but fills the same role in baking grease. Those are all great. And for just general oil, like a neutral oil, The the, the best oil that I have found to use like that, when you see like Bobby, I love Bobby Flay cooking on TV, but everything's canola oil, canola oil, organic peanut oil. It handles the high temperatures. Uh, It's probably not the greatest thing in the world for you, but it's a hell of a lot better than rapeseed oil, which is what canola actually is. So those are like the oils that that I like to have around and the fats that I like to have around. I also do a lot of cooking with butter. So when I say oils, I really mean oils and fats, and I'm actually going to change that on the list right now, but that's what I'm talking about, butter, Lard, bacon grease, olive oil, infused olive oils, peanut oil, etc. Um, I also think you should have soy sauce, your favorite barbecue sauces, whatever. Like I mentioned, my barbecue sauce, whatever you like, and use those as ingredients, not just standalones. Uh, Worcestershire sauce. I think fish sauce is a great thing to have. You can get the saltiness that you get from soy without using soy or by using less soy. And I'm talking good, high-quality Asian fish sauce. You probably need to go buy it online. Most of what's in the grocery stores is honestly crap. Prepared mustard. I don't use mustard on sandwiches and stuff like that very often, but I have multiple different types of prepared mustards. horseradish, whole seed, uh, mustards, uh, things like that. And I use different ones depending on how I feel that day sometimes, honestly. horseradish sauce. um, I generally keep at least a little thing of the best horseradish sauce I can find. And if it has many more ingredients than horseradish, it's probably not the best you can find. Horseradish sauce is pretty much macerated, ground up, or shredded horseradish root. So it's something you can make yourself as well. Maybe a little bit of vinegar to preserve it. You go buy some horseradish root, finely grate it. Put it into a jar, mix it up, add a little bit of vinegar to stabilize it, maybe a little squeeze of like lemon or lime citrus acid to help keep it from oxidizing. Put a lid on it, keep that in the refrigerator. Um, Sesame seeds, light and dark for garnishing and putting on top of glazed chickens and things like that that have any kind of Thai flavor. I like the bite they give. Sesame oil I should have included with oils and fats, so I'll say that now. There's a toasted dish, you use it in moderation because it has a very strong flavor. Um, so that's kind of it for the, the food parts of this. But I also think you should have a coffee grinder. I call my coffee grinder my spice grinder. That's what I have because I grind a lot more spice with than coffee. I'm trying a little tabletop plug in, push a button, be grinder. You know, it would do enough coffee maybe to make a single pot of coffee, but it's plenty for your spice grinding. All of those spices and herbs that I just gave you, there's times when you want more like a, a thinner, finer powder, and it'll stick better to your meat. makes more of a like a crust that you can brown up, and it makes a good crust on the outside of meat, or you want it to kind of marinate in a a rub. So you rub it, and a lot of times grinding it. I I mentioned Chef Keith Snow's steak seasoning all the time. I love the Montana steak. Sometimes I use it the way it comes out of the, the jar, it's kind of seedy and crusty, and I like that. Sometimes I throw a little bit of it and maybe even some of my other own ideas into my spice grinder, and I grind it till it's like a fine powder. Sometimes I put it in there, I pulse it a couple times, and I just break it up a bit to add another layer of flavor, complexity, and texture. So definitely I'll put a link to the coffee spice grinder that I use. I think they're like 13 bucks on Amazon Prime. They're made by Mr. Coffee. And I love the damn thing. And when you've made up some spice mix with it, and you want to clean it out. You stick it in the, in the you take the top piece off. You, you rinse it out. There's a little plastic thing that's supposed to help clean it out. You run that out. You you fill it up with water like halfway to where it says maximum line. You stick it back on there. Put the lid on it. You pulse it like a blender. Self cleans ninety percent of itself. You know, so let it air dry and you're ready to go again. I love that thing. Um, so that's something I think you should be using. I also think aluminum foil plays a huge role, so I threw that on my list, and good tongs and a good spatula. And I like to have multiple types of tongs. The ones that look like little spatulas, fine, but I also like the ones that are more of a grabber and more the ones that are just kind of an open type thing. I'll put a few in the show notes just to show you what I'm talking about. You can get these anywhere, okay? But, so I don't have a specific idea in mind, but I don't like poking things on grills unless juice is out. It makes me unhappy and sad. Alright. So this is going to be a long show because it's a passionate thing for me. I want to start giving you some different things you can cook on the grill. Again, these are not textbook recipes where I give you so much of this and so much of that. It's the technique to focus on. Free yourself up. Season things the way you like to the amount. Try it. If you think, well, I could use more of that next time, try more of that next time. So my favorite thing to make lately has been salted steaks. And here's my rules. And I like to do pork chops, salted pork chops as well. You must have thick cuts to do this and have it work well. Three quarters of an inch and up. So about three quarters to one and a quarter inches. If you don't like to cook really thick cuts of meat, do what I'm about to tell you. When you're ready to cook it and you've washed the salt off, butterfly it. In other words, take a knife, get yourself a, you know, what you want half inch, get yourself a one inch cut. Do what I'm about to tell you. When you're done with that process, Take a knife and cut it down the center and cut it in half to a thinner slice. No nothing wrong with that. All we do to make salted steak is put salt on a steak. Or salt on a pork chop or salt on a lamb chop or salt on any thick cut of meat. The other rule here, I've learned by playing with it too much, is like I will not do it with a skirt steak, even if it's a pretty thick, you know, three quarter inch skirt steak on one side. Why? Skirt steak is always thin to the point. So you need a uniformly thick piece of meat for this to work well. You get your kosher salt. This is where you break out your box, not your little hand box, your little, you know, thing you keep on the counter. You break it, a big old box. You take your steak or whatever other piece of thick meat you're going to do, set it on a cutting board. You completely cover the top of it to where you're thinking, oh God, I've ruined it now. You have not. One layer completely covered of salt and then you don't mash it in there, just kind of Press it down lightly with your fingers, flip it over, cover the other side. Set a timer. Set it on the microwave, set it on your iPhone, set uh, a big giant bell. Don't forget. Okay. The rule is one hour per inch, three quarters of an inch, 45 minutes, one inch, one hour, one inch and a quarter, one hour and 15 minutes. That should probably cover everything you'll ever do with this. When it's done, immediately turn the water on in your sink and wash all the salt off of it. Season it the way you want and grill it. It will blow you away. This technique was developed for crappy pieces of meat, right? Meat that comes out tough. A cut that comes out tough often is something like a one embroil broil cut. Um, so I thought, well, if it does well for that, it should make a New York strip pretty damn good or a ribeye pretty damn good. Yeah, it does. It changes the entire texture of the meat. It tenderizes. It opens it up. And whatever you season it with then can get in there, right? I like it way better than using, like, a a, a papaya-based uh, tenderizer. It works beautifully. It's simple. Salt is cheap. Yeah, you kind of, you know, you've used it, and it's gone, and it's a lot of salt, but you're not eating a lot of salt. Trust me, you're washing it off. The meat, If you if it tastes salty, you did it wrong. The one thing I will say, though, is if you normally put salt in your seasoning mixes, don't use salt in your seasoning mixes for this, because you have put enough sodium into the meat to have the salt flavor that you want on it. Okay. Next one is dove hunter-style chicken thighs. I personally believe that I invented this, but I could be wrong. So what you want are skin-on, bone-in chicken thighs for this, and this is a variation of of the way we make doves when we go dove hunting. We make them on little kettle grills in the field, which is basically bacon, jalapenos, and a, a glaze. Okay, So what we're going to do to make this, we're, this takes a little bit of knife tef- technique. We're going to act like we're deboning the chicken thigh. Okay, You can actually remove the bone if you want to, but I find they hold together better if you leave the bone in. So we're going to take the, the, and we're going to use our knife, and we're going to go on the non-skin portion, we're going to cut down to the bone, and we're going to open it up like we're like a butterfly with the skin still on it. Very, very important, the skin still on it. We're going to take a quarter of a big jalapeno pepper, or as much as you want from a smaller one, depending on the size. But the big ones they sell in the store, usually about a quarter, seated, and we're going to set it right next to the bone. Okay? We're going to put a little salt, pepper, and garlic on the inside of that, And we're going to fold it back over so it looks like it did before we opened it up. Okay? We're going to put some salt, pepper, garlic, maybe a little paprika on the skin. And we're going to take a piece of bacon, maybe two, depending on the size of our chicken thighs. And we're going to wrap the whole thing up in bacon and hold it together with toothpicks. Okay? That's what we're going to do. Now we're going to make more of the, I call it a glaze, it's more of a baste. We're going to use it throughout the cooking process. Okay, and so what the base is going to consist of is one part beer, one, any beer you want, you know, one part soy sauce to about a quarter part Worcestershire sauce. That is it. You mix that together, and you get a brush. You're going to take that and you're going to cook that over like a medium to high indirect heat. You're not going to put this over the fire, the bacon's going to drip down, it's going to flare up and it's going to erupt into flames and catch on fire if you do that. You absolutely can put it over the heat, watch it, flip it, and get the bacon to start crisping up a little bit at first, and then move it over. I don't like that. These things are kind of, you know, chicken is kind of loose when you first start cooking it. So you do it under indirect heat, and then you finish it, and the whole time you're basting it every once in a while with that baste. It's fantastic. It's exactly what we would do with doves. It would work on other things. This is great, though. You want to heat it up more? Throw a serrano pepper in there. You don't want it that hot? Okay, fine. Throw uh, like, a, uh, like an ancho pepper uh, or like a New Mexico hatch chili pepper, uh, something like that, poblano in there. You'll still get some of the pepper flavor, but you won't have as much heat. But frankly, jalapenos are not hot in this thing at all. Not the way I just described it. They just really don't have much heat when you use them that way, especially the ones they sell in the stores, the big ones uh, that you do a lot of really great things with. Okay, I'm going to have to go faster here. I know I'm going to make you guys hungry, but roasted finger potatoes. This is one of my favorite things. I don't eat a lot of potatoes, but if I do, I'm going to enjoy them. So the finger potatoes I'm talking about, and you do not have to do this the way that I'm going to explain it, but there's a reason I'm explaining it this way. You can pretty much throw them in the foil with everything and indirect heat cook them and they'll come out tasting really good. They won't be all perfectly brown, though, on the bottom and beautiful and golden, okay? So what we do is we take our finger potatoes and, you know, we're talking about stuff that's about as big as your thumb or a little bit bigger. They usually sell them in the produce section little bags by themselves. We're going to cut them lengthwise. and So cut them in half, just split them in half. Any really big ones, you might cut them in half again, so they're a little bit smaller. Okay. Now. We're going to put them all at first skin side up. We're gonna drizzle and rub them with olive oil. We are gonna give them a nice helping of salt that sticks to the skin and pepper, and we are going to flip them over onto their back so they're all sitting nicely. and we're gonna do this like we're like we're stacking cordwood one level, right? So use as little space between them as possible so you can fit them all in one piece of aluminum foil. And they're all facing up nice and pretty side by side looking at you, okay? Now what we're going to do, we're going to drizzle them again with olive oil, flavored if you want, infused if you want. We're going to hit them with the following, salt, pepper, rosemary, thyme, and cracked black pepper, as much as you think you want. Now we're going to take a couple big lumps of butter and put it on there. I like to keep my butter on the counter so it's nice and soft. So a couple teaspoons, a couple tablespoons of butter there to add more flavor. And then the easiest way i found to do this, because you have a pretty big area of potato at this point, You take a second sheet of aluminum foil, lay it over, and roll up the ends so you make it a pouch from two pieces of of, uh, aluminum foil. And usually then I'll use one or two more pieces to really get it nice. Okay, we're going to take that and we're going to put it initially skin side down over good high grilling heat until we hear them nice and sizzling and starting to crisp up. Then we're going to flip them so now they're, they're, they're potato side now. And we're going to cook them till they're nice and sizzling there. And then we're going to move them to indirect heat, and we're going to cook our meat or whatever else we're cooking. And we're going to let them slow cook after we've kind of browned them on the bottom. You have to get a feel for it. You can't look in there and peek. You ruin it. And you let those cook through. And what you'll figure out after you do it a couple times is how long to leave them based on your grill's temperature to get the bottom to brown without burn. But even if they're a little bit burned, that's okay. Now, if I'm going to eat a potato, I'd rather eat that than a French fry any day. Okay? So roasted finger potatoes. How about smoked pork shoulder with smokeinator? I chose that one because I have a video on it. But, I mean, this is easy. You take a pork shoulder, like a a Boston pork butt roast or what have you, throw it in your sink, rub it down, massage it with apple cider vinegar. Hit it with whatever seasonings you want. You could do worse than salt, pepper, oregano, garlic, paprika, brown sugar, uh, and onion powder. That would be fine. Chef Keith's low and slow. Barbecue, beautiful for this. That's all you need. Uh, I also like, though, at times I'll take Chef Keith's uh, low and slow, and I'll add about an equal amount of brown sugar to that, and I'll put that in a spice grinder, and pulse it just enough to kind of incorporate it all together. And rub it down, a good, heavy, healthy coating of that, and then cook it under indirect heat with a smokeinator for about four hours. And I'm just going to tell you, there's a video on the Smokinator, and it is fabulous. Usually, you'll get your temperature up around 275, 300, right when you first, you know, kind of kick it on. You've got it going. You've got, you got it ready to go. You close it up with your meat in there, but you'll see it come back down. And with that Weber kettle, if you do it the way the instructions tell you, it will almost lock on like radar to 250 degrees. And it comes out fantastic. And you can do brisket. You can do ribs. You can do anything with that Smokinator. You can... Basically, take the grill top off so you make more room. You can do a chicken or a turkey that's too big to sit under the dome by putting it down on the, the bottom. And one of the tricks I've learned with my Smokinator that helps me not kind of move it and knock it around, I take just a plain old brick, and I put it up against it. You'll see that in the video, and that holds it there. Just keep an eye on the water temperature and what have you. But it makes fant. Again, I cannot see all the fuel that I'm going to use to keep a big side box smoker running. Um, to make like a pork shoulder. I also like, and I, I didn't include it in my list, and I should, the Bradley smokers I think are fantastic. Um, the electric tile smokers, I'll add it to the list, and I'll link to the Bradley that I have, and I love them, and they are kind of set in and forget it, but they're not completely. I have caught one on fire, cooking like a bunch of brisket in one, and enough grease got down into the pan that it actually caught on fire, and I had to open it up with a, with a broomstick from far away, and spray it with a with a garden hose. Now oil fires, grease fires, I should not to put water on. This was like with a with a with a, um, a garden style like sprayer attachment, and it was like psh, 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 just into the bottom, just a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, put the fire out, and we actually saved the briskets. So it did work. Um, but so you be careful with your electric smokers. Don't think you can just ignore them. Uh, watch the heat. But the smoke smokeinator, beautiful. Again, I can't see a side box for a single item. Um, next up, I want to talk about shellfish, and not shrimp, but shrimp are great too. I'm just going to talk today, though, about things that actually come in a shell. Grilled mussels, clams, and oysters. This is simple, so don't make it hard. Take them, put them on the grill over high heat, cover them, and keep an eye on them. When they pop open, they're done. It is the most fantastic way to cook clams, uh, oysters, mussels that there is. There is no better way. It just isn't. My favorite way to do that then is before I do that, I'll, I'll heat some butter, garlic, and parsley to make basically um, a, a dipping sauce with it. And uh, there's other things you can you know add to that, but that's really as simple as it needs to be because each one of those little beautiful shellfish has made its own beautiful little sauce. So then you have your, your butter, your garlic, and maybe a little white wine is nice in that too. So butter, garlic, white wine, all you need. You, you just basically melt the butter, add the white wine, warm it through, fresh chopped garlic, really, really fine in there. Um, set that to the side. Throw your oysters, your clams, your mussels, all one of, you know, one kind, all of them, whatever, on the grill. When they pop open, they're done. When you take them off the grill, this is the key. Get a nice serving tray and use tongs and be careful and don't spill the little liquor that comes out of the clam, that little beautiful sauce that's in there with it, and set them in the tray and then just drizzle that butter, garlic, wine sauce all over them and then just let people just take them and eat them straight out of the shelves. I mean, I know a lot of times when you do shows on cooking, all people are looking for all these complex techniques. You keep it simple when simple works. And I can't think of a better way to cook a clam or an oyster or a mussel than that. It is just the best. Maybe a campfire where you're setting them in against the co- on the coals directly. That might be the only other way because it's more ambiance and it's cool as shit, right? But this is so simple. Don't make it hard. One of my I want to put some vegetable ditches in here too. This um, man cannot live on meat alone, though he sure can try and have a good time doing it. Uh, I make carrots that are, again, this is stupid simple, and everybody that eats them just goes nuts over them. So you take a big sheet of aluminum foil, cut your carrots. I like to cut my carrots into, if they're whole carrots, I cut them into kind of like stick sizes like the size of a french fry. If you use baby carrots, um, just cut them in half and put them in a, a an alum, on a piece of aluminum foil. Salt, pepper, garlic. Are you seeing a pattern here? Right, Salt, pepper, and garlic. Butter, so a big, you know, like double tablespoon of of butter on them. And then this is the key, fresh chopped sage, not dry sage. So you need to grow some sage or get a hold of some sage and, and slice it with a knife so it's like thin little ribbons and a big pinch of the fresh sage on top of the carrots and the butter. Bound that up into a foil pouch that no air can get out of. Put it over heat until you start to hear the butter sizzle. That's going to get a little bit of color on them in indirect heat, probably about 30 minutes, depending on the temperature of your grill or what have you. Don't overcook them, but they're kind of hard to overcook. They they hold up really well in that foil pouch. They don't get all mushy and soft unless you really do something wrong. That is a side dish with anything. I mean, people go nuts over it. I don't get it because it's, to me it's good, but I mean, people are like, I've never had a carrot taste like that before. Um, I will tell you, fresh carrots obviously are better than store-bought carrots for this, but even store-bought carrots come out really well. Now, my friend Neil Franklin, I made this for him with carrots that I like went out to the garden, I pulled them out of the garden, I, I peeled them, I cut them up, I put them in the pouch. They were probably from the garden to the grill in like 15 minutes. And he called me up and he was cursing at me, friendly cursing, you know, what guys do to each other basically. You son of a bitch, you lied to me, you didn't tell me everything that goes in them. And I'm like, I did. And he's like, I made them. They're not the same. Well, of course they're not the same. You got yours from the grocery store. They're not going to be quite the same, but they're still damn good. Um, sweet potato planks. Um, you know, you can make a sweet potato just like a baked potato. Easiest way to do a sweet potato, rub it with a little bit of oil, coat it with salt on the, on the peelings, roll it up in foil and cook it on the grill. But here's another way to do it. Cut your potatoes into like big steak fry size planks. Brush them with some oil or some fat of your choice. Season them with your choice. Salt, pepper, thyme, rosemary is nice. And just grill them like little sticks until they're soft. Just open grill on the hot surface. The the sweetness, the sugar in the sweet potato will start to come out and will caramelize a little bit for you. You can even make a little bit of a glaze for that if you want to. I don't think it's necessary. Uh, My favorite sweet potatoes to make actually don't look like sweet potatoes when they're they're cooked. Uh, Japanese purple sweet potatoes. I love those. They almost taste buttered without butter. And I do exactly what I just said with the oil on the outside, salt on the outside, pepper on the outside, roll up in foil and cook them, just bake them. got um, another one for you. If you want something kind of different and you, you don't want a lot of carbohydrate, it's called Yimica, or Himica, which is spelled J-I-C-A-M-A. And this is a South American thing. It's a tuber. It looks like a big uh, rutabaker that got crossed with some weird potato. It tastes sort of like an apple, is the best way I can describe it. And it's very hard, and it's a pain in the butt to peel. But you peel it, and you cut it into big planks, and you grill it. And grilled, the way that I do it the most often, I throw it in a bowl, because I really want it coated with oil, and I take a good infused oil. Like uh, a sage, like uh, olive basket is one of our MSB sponsors, and they have a sage and wild mushroom-infused olive oil. That's great on these things. So enough to really coat them and mix it in there with your hands. Salt, pepper, garlic. I mean, I know it's, like, redundant, but there's a reason. And uh, then you take that out on a hot grill, and you grill it till it starts to caramelize and get soft. And then you, when you take it off the grill, as soon as you take it off the grill, you take a, a nice handful of freshly grated good real parmesan cheese salty real hard parmesan cheese and coat it with that and let the residual heat kind of melt it on there they're fantastic and that's a that's a thing you probably have seen in the store you didn't know what it is or how to cook it and uh it's it's a wonderful wonderful plant we can actually grow them here in america if we time our planting just right And it really is relatively low in sugar. Um, it doesn't seem like it when you look at it because the carbohydrates per serving is 58 grams. But 32 grams of the 58 is dietary fiber. Dietary fiber. So only those 12 grams of sugar per serving. So even if you're like doing the Dr. Eads protein power plan, that is totally within your maintenance level for carbohydrates for a meal. So if you're concerned about low-carbohydrate, it's not zero, but it's it's much lower than you would think. Not everybody's going to like it. It does kind of have like an apple potato thing going on with a different texture. But, I mean, give it a shot. You can buy one for a couple bucks, try it, see if you like it, play with other ways to make it. And, uh, man, they're I like it. When it's undercooked, I don't. I like to get to a point where it's still a little bit crispy, but you can cut it with a fork. That's when I think it's done for me. Okay, I'm about to make you hungry now. I am. If I haven't done so, this one's going to do it. Um, I like to grill and make... See, apple and pork are just wonderful together. They, they really are. Uh, that's why you'll see like chicken-apple sausage because they're trying to make it like pork and apple and you can't do that with chicken. I'm sorry. Um, but that's why you see so many apple sausages. So what if we just put the sausage in the apple instead of the apple in the sausage? Intrigued yet? Okay, so this is, this is all we're going to do for this. We choose a sausage that we like. I make different handmade sausages. Uh, I have a basic sausage recipe that this works great for that you can play with, and I'll put a link to the recipe for that in today's show notes as well. So let me note that so I don't forget. The key with this is you're going to pre-cook your sausage, okay? So we're going to just take a pan and we're going to saute our sausage. We can do that indoors first. We can do it outdoor on a side burner or what have you, but we're going to cook our sausage through. And we're going to take an apple, and we are going to core the apple, but we're going to leave the peel on. it. So we're going to cut the top off, and then we're going to cut the or, or, or not. You really don't have to, but I just find it easier to work with if the top's flat. And we're going to cut the core out of the apple, but, so it's like a little bowl, right? And we make a little bit more than the core out than we normally would. And they make a tool for this that you can core an apple with. It's called an apple core. I'll see if I can find one on Amazon for you, so you know what you're looking at. But they're a couple bucks. They look kind of like a, a steak knife on two sides with kind of a cup shape to them. You stick them in there and you take the core out. The key is you do not want, repeat, do not want, put a hole through the bottom of the apple. So we're making an apple with a hole in it. And we're gonna take the sausage, and we're gonna stuff it in the hole that's in the apple. And then we're gonna take that, we're gonna wrap it in foil, and we're gonna set it apple bottom side down on Kind of high indirect heat to medium high indirect heat in the grill. We're going to set them on the grill and we're going to close the lid. And how long depends on your grill, your temperature, and how big the apples are. This is why we're going to pre cook the sausage so we don't really have to worry about it. But when you can squeeze the apples and they're kind of soft, you're done. You can take them out, we're going to open them up, and we're going to go in with a fork and we're going to take sausage and, and grilled roasted apple out together. And we're going to be pretty freaking happy when that happens. Just trust me. A spicy sausage goes nice with this. Like an Italian spicy sausage is good with this. Um, but you can do it with breakfast sausage. You can do it. You can make a, basically it's a sausage that's just basically ground pork, salt, pepper, and garlic. Um, and, and it'll be pretty good. But if you take it toward the chorizo side with some paprika and some... Uh, roasted peppers that are that are ground up into it or what have you. It's really good that way, too. Um, but this is fantastic, and it's so simple. And it's kind of a blow, like if you have guests coming over and you want to do something cool, it's so simple. And it's not one of those things like you have to be sitting there watching it because you're just basically baking it. You can do these in the oven. It's really not hard. I'll throw a bonus in for you. Okay, another way to do this, same thing, but take an acorn squash, cut it in half, seed it. And grill it, uh, just uncovered, you know, squash side down until it starts to get a little bit soft. Flip it over, put the squash in it, indirect heat, and finish it that way. You can do this with a lot of different things. On the same note, but I've never done this with sausage, and I don't think it really is necessary. But grilled avocado, um, it's a fantastic side dish. It goes really good if you're doing like a fajitas or any kind of like a, a Tex-Mex type thing with it. You cut an avocado in half, throw it on the grill. Pretty much. I mean, that's that's really all you have to do. And you grill it until it's 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 warm through. And it kind of totally changes the profile, the flavor, and the taste of it. It doesn't really need any oil because there's plenty of oil in avocado. But a lot of times, it really pays to take a nice infused olive oil and coat the outside of the you know the flesh side where you've cut the avocado in half, and remove the pit, and a little so. I've read where people do this, and they put lime juice on the avocado and then grill it, and I don't think that really works very well. So what you do is you grill your avocado, and then when you pull it off, you hit it with a little bit of lime, fresh lime juice that doesn't go on the grill and get cooked away. Um, it's just give it a shot. That's, that's all I can tell you. It is fantastic. For dessert, how about grilled peaches? This is another one. You, you, you cut your peach in half and remove the the, the the stone and leave them in two halves. Throw the peaches on the grill and Cook them until they start to brown a little bit and they're soft and warm. Take them off the grill and eat them. I mean, it, it can be that simple. You, you can brush them with, like, a little bit of brown sugar and water. That's a great thing to get a little bit more crisp and that, that, or a little bit more of that golden color on them. They'll kind of uh, caramelize a little bit quicker that way, and you can, you can avoid overcooking them. But what a fantastic, fantastic dessert. Um, and, you know, you could use, like, if you wanted to do something really cool, Um, what you want is the uh, sweet Italian cream cheese, the stuff that they make uh, tiramisu with. It's uh, mascarpone, 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 something like that. So that's usually available in most markets. And so you grill your peaches, you flip them over, and then you just take a spoon when they're nice and hot and drop a little mascarpone cheese in them. I mean, that's so much better than like a pie or a cake or whatever. It's relatively benign you're talking about one per person so it's not that much sugar it's just the sugar that would be in a peach and it's half the sugar that would be in a peach and the mascarpone has a little bit of sugar in it but it's basically just a cheese which is you know very low carb so you could do a grilled steak with that as a as a dessert with the carrots that I gave you that would be really really awesome and it is that simple and fruits often get overlooked for grilling but I'll tell you some other things that are good grilled apricots is great pineapple um, You know, get a whole pineapple, core it, peel it, and then just put big planks of it on the grill and just cook them until they start to brown. That's fantastic with pork. It really is. You can use it as a a side dish or as a dessert. Uh, Another thing that grills really good is apricots. Apricots taste really good grilled. I was never a big apricot fan until I tried them grilled. And uh, they're fantastic grilled. How about another one? How about one that's going to be like, really, you can do that? I didn't know that. Uh, Catfish not wrapped up in foil, not anything special, um, either a whole-skinned catfish or if you have a really big catfish, like you catch your own. So, like, a lot of times you go to the grocery store and you go to the, the, the meat uh, area, uh, the deli or whatever you call it, the meat where the fishmonger and, and meat cutter is, right, butcher area, uh, where you can pick your meat out. So of just get it pre You'll see, like, catfish fillets. You'll also see what's called catfish nuggets. These are larger farmed catfish where they cut the belly flaps off. Those are actually not bad deep-fried, if you want to do ch- deep-fried catfish on the cheap. Um, but you'll also see a whole catfish, and they're generally a catfish that's about uh, 12 to 14 inches long, minus the head. So that means it was a fish of 16, 18 inches when it was harvested. And it's just whole and skin, bone in. If you're going to buy them, that's usually what you'll end up with. I, I I've tried them that way. They come out fine, the way I'm about to tell you how to do them. But the way I actually came up with this... When I used to fish a lot, especially in Pennsylvania, I caught a lot of channel catfish that were bigger catfish. I'm talking five, six-pound cats going 24, 26, 28 inches. And we let a lot of those go, but we also would keep some from time to time. And instead of just filleting them or whatever, what I would do is I would skin them, which is basically you take and cut a a slice down the backbone and around the neck and grab a pair of pliers and pull the skin off. Um, And then I would you know, gut them. And I would cut steaks out of them. And you honestly don't really have to skin them if you do this staking. So when I say steaks, I'm talking about the way that you see salmon done, where you can like look and you see the backbone and you see the the belly flaps, and it's like about an inch thick. So a big catfish you catch yourself, you cut steaks all the way down to the tail like that. Maybe the last little bit of tail where it's small, you go and fillet that off and do something else with it. And then either the whole small cats like you buy in the store or these big steaks you cut like a salmon steak out of your own fish. So complicated. So so complicated. You take salt and pepper and put it on both sides of the fish. You get a nice hot fire, not blazing hot, but a nice hot fire, and you put the fish directly on the grill. If you want to feel a little bit better about it, lubricate your grill with a little bit of oil, or put a little bit of oil on your fish. But you're not really going to need to do it. If you get it too hot, you can have a problem. So you kind of play with this and, and learn what you're doing. Here's what happens: catfish actually has a lot of fat in it, kind of like a white grease. As you're cooking that fish, that grease will begin to come out of the fish, and it will drop down into the flames, and little not like a big flare up, like when a chicken goes nuclear, right? Everybody's seen that. It's not pretty. But like little psh psh, psh psh will come up. And it will start to caramelize and crisp up and brown the outside of the fish. If you do this right, you kind of see that it's starting to cook through pretty good, starting to firm up. Take a spatula, or if it's a whole fish, use the, the, the tongs that look like a spatula and flip it one time. Don't drop it down, just kind of set it down on the grill, cook the other side that way. By the time it does that, it will have cooked through. You might want to cook it with the, the top down a little bit while you're doing this to help it cook through, or take like a pot lid and set it over top of it so it has its own little basting area to do that with Now we can keep it on. If it's flaring too much, you put, your, you put your spatula underneath it and just slide it over so it's in a different spot on the heat. And when that's done, take it off and eat it. That's it. I know what you're thinking. The fish is going to fall apart. It's going to stick. It's, catfish doesn't if you do what I just said. I've been doing that since I was 14 years old because I had a great big catfish. I cut steaks out of it just on a lark because I saw them in the store. And my uncle's like, what are you going to do with that? I'm like, I'm going to cook it on the grill. He's like, it won't work. It'll fall apart. It'll stick. So I fired up a little gas grill, threw it on there, and he's like, oh, it works. I'm like, yeah, it works. Like, I knew what I was doing. I didn't. I just tried it, and it worked out just fine. People do salmon this way all the time. Why not catfish? I actually prefer it to salmon a great deal. I actually like it a lot. Another way to do fish, this is my last one. Uh, I do this in memory of my good friend, Hal Dodd, who was a sand bass guide on Joe Pool Lake and taught me that lake to where I know it as well as anybody else, I think, in in the state at this point. And uh, he shared a lot of things with me. One was what he called sand bass on the half shell. This will work with any fish that's like a big scaled fish. So like largemouth bass, and oh, my God, he's going to kill a largemouth bass. It's a big sunfish, big bluegill, big sunfish, um crappie will work this way, anything with, with big scales. And the beauty is you don't have to scale them. All you do is you just take your fish and fillet and leave the skin on. So standard fillet, leave the skin on. And then you put your seasonings. And I'll tell you what I like to use for this is salt, <laughs> pepper, garlic, and a little bit of paprika. And you just set the fish skin side down on the grill over a medium heat and close it and cook them until they're done. It will start to shrink up a little bit and the skin will kind of crisp up and kind of start to curl. And then take it off and then take like parsley, garlic, and butter, usually soft butter, put fresh parsley in it, some granulated garlic in it, and whip it. And then let that melt over the fish after it's been cooked. And again, the paprika will give it a little bit of color. It'll be nice. And you eat it right out of the skin. Now, it's a little bit more likely to stick on you if you're not careful. But if you like fish skin, and I do, then you do scale the fish. Scale it before you you fillet it. It will be hard to scale after you fillet it. You scale your fish so you're down to skin. You fillet it. You do everything the same way, and you go ahead and eat the skin with it. Okay? Okay. So that's my last one. So I hope you enjoyed today's show. I know I did. I want to go cook now. Many of you are probably very hungry. Um, what I want to encourage you to do with grilling and cooking outdoors is don't be reined in. If you even you're thinking like, okay, well I've never made X Y Z before, and I want some guidance, well look up a couple recipes, and, and don't necessarily try to follow them perfectly because a lot of times these recipes are made complicated. They include side dishes that maybe seem complicated and I don't want to do it now or whatever. Look at the technique for the thing you want to cook. Kind of how long do they use direct or indirect heat? Do they have high heat, low heat? Uh, how long do they keep it over the heat? What do they flavor it with? And then what would go well with that? You know, if you want it to be a little more curry-like, you know, use a little turmeric and some cumin, right? And you can bring something to more of a curry. Um, so it, it's, you know, you're totally in control And don't be afraid to try something different. If you can cook it in a stove or on an oven, you you, you can cook it on a grill. It's just heat. Don't don't make it more uh, scary or complicated than it is. Um, If you're going to do things like brisket, don't be afraid to use a Texas sheet. I use a Texas sheet all the time with brisket. If I'm going to do a single brisket, I get my smokeinator out, and I run it for about four to five hours on the smokeinator. That gets plenty of smoke flavor in it. And uh, I might have to add some charcoal to the smokeinator two or three times it, to, to keep it four or five hours at 250. Then I take great big uh, disposable aluminum pan so that I don't mind throwing it away if it gets too nasty on me. I put a bunch of aluminum foil in it. I take the brisket and I set it in there and I completely cover the brisket with aluminum foil, sealed up so nothing get out. I throw it in the oven overnight at 250 degrees or 225 degrees and it's fall apart perfect the next day. So don't be, able to, don't be afraid to combine things like that. If I have to use a side box smoker because I'm away and we've taken it with us candy or something, I'm going to do brisket and do the same thing. I just leave it in there. I put it all the way to that side of the smoker. And and just, you know, so it's it's in there about 200 degrees, and I just keep the smoker going overnight. And I, I worry less about smoke and more about just keeping it warm, just keeping some fuel on it, just keeping it going. And, and you know, that's having a beer and you know, up till about midnight before you go to bed, and it'll probably be beautiful in the morning, and then the reason I like to use that pan is a lot of times, even though you've done your best to seal it up, a lot of the juice will have come out of it, and, and be laying, and then it's not all in the bottom of your oven, or the bottom of your, you know, your grill, or what have you, and you can take it out of there, and, you know, dispose of that, and then go back into that pan to cut it up, part it out, put some foil over it, serve it, all right, now that doesn't I know there's purists out there that say that's not the right way to do a brisket. It's got to be smoked for 12 and a half hours or whatever. I don't give a damn. I'm not trying to win competitions. I'm trying to make food that I like and my family likes and my friends like. And I'm trying to make my life easy and quick. And I don't want to feel like it's a fussy pain in the ass to do stuff because then you don't do it. Then you're like, screw it, I'm going to go out to eat because I don't want to do this. Where I try to make this enjoyable, I sit outside and have a beer with the ducks, you know, and grill some duck breast. You can do that too. There's almost nothing you can't grill. All right? So with that, as we wrap up today, let me remind you, if you like this show, if you thought this show, you think this show is worth 20 cents? I mean, seriously, do you feel like you learned enough that it was worth two dimes? Then consider joining the member support brigade. If you do that, you'll help support the show at about $50 a year. That comes out to about 18 cents 9 an episode. I think it's 18 cents 3 an episode. But if you like the kind of stuff we talked about today, you probably like a lot of other stuff that I have discounts for. If you use those discounts... You'll get your 50 bucks back, plus you'll be profitable, and you'll support the show. You can do that by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members there to learn more about how to sign up. And if you are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or an EMT, paramedic, firefighter, or any of those types of things, email me with TSPC, service discount in the subject line, tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I'll send you a discount code. But you've got to do that before, not after you become a member. I can't go back and retroactively do it. The system won't let me. It just doesn't work that way. All right. Um, everybody else, you can just sign up, uh, and you can you can pay online with with PayPal. You can pay online with Bitcoin, uh, or you can pay by United States mail in silver or cash or check or money order. And if you want to barter for a membership, email me. You know, I'll always cut a deal for the right deal. For the song of the day today, man, I want to go a little bit old school with you. A little uh, another song from CCR, one of my favorite all time uh, bands for the younger people. That would be Creedence Clearwater Revival. Um, a band with a tremendous number of hits, given the very few years they were actually together as a band. Uh We're going back all the way to the late 60s there, folks. For you uh, millennials, that's before any of you were born, and that's before um probably any of you were planned on being born by your parents. Uh, this is old school music, but it is. I think even if you're not familiar with Creedence Clearwater Revival that much, it's not something you think about. And you, you really, when I say uh, the name of the song, Who Will Stop the Rain?, you may think, I don't really know that song, but as soon as you hear the opening guitar riff, you'll recognize. It's also a short song. They have a lot of songs were, you know, two, three minutes. This, this song's like two uh, two minutes, 28 seconds, but it's two minutes and 28 seconds of great music. Uh, remember, great music goes great with outdoor grilling. So uh, maybe tonight when you're trying out one of these techniques, put some CCR on, turn it up, have a beer, and remember, this has been Jack Spirico, as always, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.